Hey, I'm Dave, and thanks so much for checking out today's message. We're so glad that you are here, and we would love to get connected to you and your family. So one easy way to do that is that you can text the word River Connect to 97000. You can also visit our website at theriverchurch.cc to learn more about us and some of our upcoming events. Lastly, if you'd like to give today to the River Church, you can text the amount that you want to give to 84321, or you can head to our website, click on the Give tab right at the top of the page. Thanks again for joining us, and we hope you enjoy today's message. If you got a Bible, let's grab them and open them up to the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter number 3. If you don't have a Bible, I want to encourage you. You can take out your smartphone. You can download a Bible app or the River Church app, and there's a Bible feature on there. I want to encourage you to be seeing the Word of God for yourself. Philippians chapter 3 in verse number 12. I uh, missed you last week, but uh, it's great to be back uh, together this week. I know we had a, just a massive snowstorm last week, and um, thank you to those of you who were still here. Uh, you know, you never know what's going to uh, happen on those days. If you're a guest, I want to welcome you. Glad you're here, whether you're here in the room, sitting here together, or whether you're watching online, I want to welcome you. Uh, glad to uh, be together. Over the last few weeks, we've been looking at what we believe is really Jesus's vision, his mission, his hope for the church, that God's people would be reaching the world with the gospel, that we would be gathering together, which is what we are now doing. We're gathering together as God's people, celebrating the gospel, celebrating what Jesus Christ has done in our life, and then growing. And that's what we're going to talk about today, growing in the Word. When we talk about growing, really what we could even say this way, we're talking about growing up. We're talking about growing up as a believer, maturing as a believer, And so that's what we're going to look at today in Philippians chapter number 3. So let's pick up there in verse number 12. Paul says, Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Look at verse 15. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Now, throughout the book of Philippians, and again, this is just a letter written from the Apostle Paul. He is in prison in Rome, and he is writing to the church in the city of Philippi, a church that he loves, a church that he knows, a church that he was part of the beginning of. He was there in Acts chapter 16, and people came to know Jesus, and the church began not just in Philippi and in the region of Macedonia, but in the entire continent of Europe. It's an incredible moment in Christian church history. Well, now Paul is writing a letter to them, and he says in verse 15, I want you to think this way. If you're mature, this is the way I want your brain to function. And he's talked about this a few times in the book 
of Philippians. A few times, he's going to deal with the way that we think. Look over at chapter 4 and verse number 8. He says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Let me just pause here and make a note about this passage of Scripture. How many false things do we think about? Verse 8, how many dishonorable things do we think about? How many unjust things do we think about? How many impure things do we think about? How many things do we think about that are unlovely, not commendable, not excellent? Our minds often are obsessed with all of these things. And so Paul is saying to the church there, think about lovely things, true things, honorable things, just things, pure things, your mind. Now, if you jump back to chapter 3 and verse number 18, excuse me, number 19, Paul is warning those who have gone really astray from the gospel. He says their end is destruction, their God is their belly, meaning their appetites, whether that's a a physical food-type appetite or a sexual appetite or an appetite for power. He says they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Go back to chapter number 2, in verse number 2. Paul says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Look at verse number, uh, chapter 1, verse 27. Only let your manner of life the scripture says, be worthy of the gospel so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit. Here it is with one mind. So back to chapter three in verse number 15, Paul is saying, I want you to be thinking a certain way. I want you to have a specific mindset. Now he's established what that mindset looks like in chapter 2, with the mind of Christ. We're following uh, Christ's example. But here's the question we're going to talk about today. How does a mature Christian think? How should a mature Christian think? Now, let me just pause here before we let me define some terms so we don't misunderstand or miscommunicate here. When we say mature Christian, we're not talking about someone who's old. Okay? We're not saying mature Christian, okay, so if you're young here, this is how you're supposed to think when you are an old Christian. That's not what we're talking about here. One of the most haunting phrases I ever read in my life, it's something I think about pretty regularly, it says this, wisdom does not automatically come with old age. Sometimes old age comes alone. Now, I don't say that to be cruel or to be mean, but for me, one of the things that I'm is super important to me. I do not want to grow to be an old, dirty, dumb man. I don't want to be that. I also don't want to fabricate wisdom as an old man. Like, well, I'm old, I'm supposed to have wisdom, but I don't have any. So I want to be an old, wise, pure man. That's, that's my hope and ambition in life. So when we talk about a mature Christian, we're talking about a Christian that's growing up. Not age, but a Christian who's 
maturing in the faith. So for each of us, what does that look like with our mindset? Paul says there, let those of us who are mature think this way. So you might be sitting in here and you might be 50 years old, 60 years old, 70 years old, older than that, younger than that. And you may realize in this moment, man, I've been around a lot of churchy things for a long time, but I'm not really a stable, solid, mature believer. We're talking about stability. We're talking about spiritual strength. And sometimes you'll meet a young man or a young woman that's growing in their faith, maturing in their walk with the Lord. And you'll meet a 75-year-old man or 75-year-old woman that is not maturing, strong, walking with the Lord. And so however the Holy Spirit moves in your heart right now, I hope that you'll be convicted and challenged by this passage in verse 15. Let those of us who are mature think this way. So I'm going to give you a handful of ways that a mature believer thinks. Look at verse number 12 again. Paul says, Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. Verse 13, he reiterates that same thought. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. So if you're going to jot these notes down, here's the first thing. How does a mature Christian think? They think this way. I haven't arrived. I'm not perfect. I'm still learning and growing. A mature believer is not someone who goes, man, I, I've, I've landed. I have arrived. I guess I'm not perfect, but I'm nearly perfect. No, a mature believer says, I'm not there yet. I have a long ways to go. I'm still learning and I'm still growing. Ecclesiastes chapter number four, you don't have to turn there, but I'll just read it to you. You can jot it down in your notes. Ecclesiastes chapter 4 and verse 13 says this, Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. I'm going to read that to you again. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. What are we talking about here when it comes to being mature? It's realizing you haven't arrived. It's maintaining a humble spirit. It's maintaining teachability. It's knowing you haven't arrived where you're supposed to be yet. That you're still in process. That the sanctification process is, is happening in your life. Meaning you, you might be in an age timeline further along in the journey, but you're not where you're supposed to be. And so what you do is you look back and go, wow, look at what the Lord has brought me through. Man, I still have a long way ahead of me. So what does that do? That instills humility. So someone who may be a newer Christian in here, whether that person age-wise is old or age-wise is young, comes into the body of Christ and is not like being intimidated by those who have been around the Christian faith and walked with Jesus for a while. They're meeting believers who are humble. They're meeting believers who are teachable. They're meeting Christians that are not like, well, let me tell you how we do it around here, you know, little buddy. That was kind of a John Wayne impression. I don't know why I slipped into that. Okay. That was strange. Uh, I have to watch that video and figure out what happened in my head there. Uh, sorry. But you've met these people in the church before. 
Like, I've been here 60 years. Let me tell you how to do it. And it's like, well, sometimes the guy who's been here for one week needs to tell the guy who's been here for 60 years how to do it. So what we do is we maintain teachability. We maintain a mindset of, I haven't arrived. I'm not perfect. I'm still learning. I'm still growing. Verse 12 continues. Paul says, I, I haven't arrived. I'm not, I'm not obtained but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus had made me, has made me his own. So the first kind of mindset is I'm not perfect. I haven't arrived. I'm still learning. I'm still growing. But the second mindset we see here in verse number 12 is I didn't do this. Jesus did this. I'm going to say that again. I didn't do this. Jesus did this. One of the most dangerous things that happens to Christians, whether it's a pastor, whether it's a deacon, whether it's a longtime church person, member, whatever we want to call it, is looking at their life and kind of having this smug sense of, man, look at what, look at what I did. And then we kind of maybe are a little afraid and we're like, well, I didn't do it all, but I did some of it. And we might look at our marriage or we might look at our kids or we might look at our family and be like, wow, I'm kind of awesome. And that shows absolute spiritual immaturity. Paul says here, I haven't arrived. I'm not where I'm supposed to be. I'm continuing to press on. And here's why. Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. What's happening in my life is a work of Jesus. Flip over to Philippians chapter 1 and verse number 6. Early in the letter, Paul says this to his friends in Philippi. He says, and I am sure of this, meaning I'm confident that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Paul's not saying, hey, I started the work there. Although Paul had been there at the beginning, Paul is saying, I'm confident that the Holy Spirit of God who started that work in you, he will bring it. The Lord will bring that to completion. Now hold your spot in Philippians. Go to the left and let's go to the book of Acts. Acts chapter number nine. A mature believer thinks, I didn't do this. Jesus did this. Meaning all that I am is a work of the Lord. Acts chapter 9. We're introduced to a man named Saul. Saul, later in his life, just at this point, becomes Paul. Now that's a crazy conversion. Sometimes I have to pause and reflect on who Saul was and how he became Paul. It is a radical transformation. So I'm going to read this story, beginning of verse 1. It says, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. So who is Saul? Saul is the villain of the early church. Saul is the one who is seeking to arrest. He is seeking to kill any disciples of the Lord. That's who Saul is. 
And he's already succeeded in a previous chapter. In chapter number seven, we see him holding the coats of people who are executing a preacher named Stephen. Matter of fact, Stephen was one of those guys who was a prototype of deacons. So Stephen is murdered and Paul is applauding the death. I mean, a gruesome, bloody, awful death of Stephen. So it's almost like a shark who's tasting, you know, smelled blood in the water. Saul wants more of this. He even talks about being zealous to persecute the church. And so in verse 2, it says, He goes to the high priest and he asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus. Meaning, he's going to leave his own country to go to a foreign country to track down Christians. So it says, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So I want you to see, like, Luke, the author here, is setting the stage. He wants to kill him. He wants to arrest him. And he doesn't care if they're just in his town. He's going to travel north to Damascus, and he's going to find anybody that's a Christian. He's going to shackle them and bring them back down to stand trial. Some of them, in that sense, would die in the same way that Stephen did. Stephen was drugged outside of the city and bludgeoned to death with stones. So, I mean, this guy is ruthless. Verse 3. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, this is the blinding light, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. So here is Paul on the road to Damascus, and Jesus appears to him. Now, putting this in a little bit of context very quickly, this is after the earthly ministry of Jesus. So Jesus has died on the cross. Jesus has been buried. Jesus has risen from the dead. Jesus has met with his disciples and Jesus has ascended up into heaven. So this is after that. So Saul is this villain of the early church and all of a sudden Jesus appears to him. This blinding light knocks him on the ground and Paul says, in terror, who are you, Lord? And Jesus, associating with the suffering of his people, said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Jesus says, but rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground. Although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days, he was without sight. He neither ate nor drank. I imagine, and I've talked about this before, Paul is there three days, doesn't eat, doesn't drink anything, can't see anything, and his mind had to be going a million miles an hour. I was going to Damascus. I was going to do what I thought was right. I was going to persecute Christians, kill some of them, and all of a sudden, Jesus shows up, knocks me to the ground, blinds me, and and I can't walk to Damascus on my own. I have to be led because I can't see. Verse 10, there was a disciple, Damascus, his name was Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. At the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, 
For behold, he is praying. So very specific here. Go to the street that they call Straight Street. Find Judas's house, and there's going to be a guy there from Tarsus. His name is Saul. He's in the middle of praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come and come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Ananias said, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. Ananias is in a conversation with God. Here am I, Lord. What do you need from me? And as you go to Straight Street, go to Judas's house, there'll be a guy named Saul there from Tarsus. He's in the middle of praying. He's seen a vision of you showing up. And Ananias in just rational human form says, uh, Lord, I've heard about this guy. He's, he's nasty. He's wicked. He's done some evil things. Matter of fact, we're all in Damascus afraid because he has authority here to do some terrible things. Verse 15, the Lord said to him, go for he's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed, entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes. He regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food. He was strengthened. For some days, verse 19, he was with the disciples at Damascus and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. You just got to see this turn here. The villain becomes a preacher of Jesus in the same town where he's going to synagogues as like a, hey, a conquering hero, like Saul's here, Saul's going to root out those Jesus people. All of a sudden, Saul's, Saul shows up maybe a few days later than they expected him. And he's like, hey, just so you know, Jesus is the son of God. And they're like, what? So the synagogue, they want to kill him. And the Christians are like, I don't know what to do with him. I don't know if he's a spy. I don't know if he's pretending. I don't know what's going on here. So Paul, radical transformation. What the Lord started in his life. So let's make a couple notes here. First of all, there is nobody in your life Nobody in your life that is too far gone that Jesus can't save them. Come on. There is nobody in your life. There is no spouse, child, parent, friend, neighbor, boss that is too far from the grace of God. Paul is an example of that. This guy who hated Jesus and hated Jesus' people becomes the most prolific missionary in history. That's what Jesus can do. That's the power of the gospel. So no one is outside of the power of the grace of God. But I want you to know this. If you're a growing, maturing believer, you and I don't touch the credit for what's happened in our life. People go, oh, man, that's really cool. You got some great, I mean, your family, your marriage, your kids, you know, your change, your success, whatever it might be. And a mature believer says, I didn't do that. Jesus did that. I, I didn't do that. 
Man, how, how'd you get clean from drugs? How, how'd you stop drinking? How'd you fix this in your life? You say, I didn't do that. Jesus did that. And what that becomes in that moment is an opportunity for the gospel. Because then you and I become a light in this world. People see that and they go, what happened? The light can't take credit for it. We have to say, oh, Jesus did this for me. So a mature believer doesn't take credit. A mature believer says, I didn't do this. Jesus did this. Now let's go back to Philippians. So I have to hurry before I break this microphone. So Paul says, I, I haven't arrived. I'm not perfect. I haven't attained perfection. Christ Jesus has made me his own. Verse 13, brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own. So he repeats that idea. I haven't arrived. I'm not where I'm supposed to be. I'm not reached perfection. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies behind ahead. So a mature Christian is not stuck in the past. Is not stuck in the past. How many churches, how many Christians become obsessed with what used to be? And we're talking about some positive things. Paul has some incredible experiences with the Lord. But Paul talks about forgetting what lies behind. So let's look at that a couple different ways. He says, one thing I do, I forget what lies behind. So he envisions himself in a race. He's a runner. He has the prize, the finish line set before him. He's not turning around mid-stride and going, okay, wow, we've made it through some pretty thick terrain. This is kind of wild. No, he is forgetting what lies behind. What does that mean to forget what lies behind? It means, yeah, he's going to celebrate what the Lord did. He's going to celebrate past successes, but he's not going to be obsessed with them. There's a lot of Christians, there's a lot of churches that become the used to church. We used to do that. Remember this. Remember back in the day. And the church no longer becomes alive and future-oriented. It becomes a mausoleum of what used to be. Paul says, I forget what lies behind so past successes, but also what? Past failures. How many of us have been running the Christian life and made a disaster of it? Said something stupid, made a, made a dumb decision, fell down in the mud, and we're like, Ugh. Those failures, those regret, those mistakes, those misunderstandings. Paul says, I'm not stuck in the past. A mature believer thinks this way. A mature believer says, I'm not perfect. I didn't do this. Christ did it. And is not constantly looking in the rear view mirror. I, I saw a guy gave me a sequence of word this, words this week that I thought was really interesting for the life cycle of a church. He said, churches go in incline and then churches go into recline. And as soon as the church goes into recline, they're headed for the last stage, which is decline. I thought about it in my own life. I thought about it for the life of our church. I thought about it for my personal life with the Lord. Incline, am I pushing forward? Am I striving forward? Or am I in recline? 
mean, should we change all these seats? And this is, this is hyperbole, by the way. Should we change all these seats to recliners? Because that's symbolic of where our church is. I hope not. Like, oh man, we've had a good, we've had some good years, some cool things have happened. Let's recline and take it easy. Do you know how many, sorry, do you know how many older Christians I see do that? Hit the recline? Well, I taught Sunday school for 30 years. I'm done. I led Nawana for a while. I was in kids' ministry. And I hear people say this sometimes. Well, it's the next generation's turn. Well, sometimes it's good. You're passing the baton, but then you're hitting the recline. What's Paul say here? Paul says, one thing I do. I want you to see this. I think this is important. This is a verse that gets taken out of context. The one thing I do is not just forgetting what lies behind. He says, the one thing I do is I am straining forward to what lies ahead. So how does a mature believer think? A mature believer says, I'm not perfect. I didn't do this. Christ did it. I'm not just looking in the rear view mirror all the time. How does a mature believer think? I am pressing forward. And we see that in verse 12 and in verse 14. Verse 12, Paul says, I press on. Verse 14, I press on. Meaning I am still pushing Maybe the pace at which I can go because the age is different. Maybe the rate at which I can go is different because of family obligations or health needs or kids or grandkids or job or whatever it might be or a unique season in your life. But a believer who is wanting to mature is still pressing on. Meaning what? No apathy. No phoning it in. Jesus says it in Revelation 3.16, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. Meaning you're not hot, you're not cold. It had to do with the, the springs there around that city that Jesus is talking to. But he says, you're lukewarm. I'm just gonna vomit you out of my mouth. And what is so frustrating to me is to see some of you who have a lot of gas left in the tank who have just gone apathetic for the things of God. Your neighbors don't know the Lord, and you're like, ah, it'll be okay. Rather than saying, I am in the game, I am in the race, I'm not putting myself on the bench, I'm not just passing the baton and just going to hang out here and I'm in Christian retirement. It's just disgusting to God. So what does a mature believer think? I got to press on. I, I got to push. I want to read more of the scriptures in 24 than I did in 23. I'm going to crush this sin. I'm going to beat this habit. I'm going to see this ministry that I'm involved in go forward. I want to see our church become more gospel-oriented. I want to see our church be praying together. I want to see our kids' ministry just grow out of the building. I want to see, I'm going to press forward to the gospel effort. Some of you are like, I've never been on a mission trip. Then make 24 the year. Some of you say, I've never shared the gospel with anybody in my life. Make this week the week. Think this way. Press on. 
no apathy. This week I was at a, a small little pastor's conference up north. And there were three guys there, two that I know real well, one that I, I just met. And uh, they're both, all three of them are in their late 60s and uh, early 70s. So not old, but not like 45, you know. It's just different season. So they've passed the batons at their, their churches, and they've, they've transitioned to different ministry. And each of the times they talked, you could see the fire in them. Like that there was still something waking them up in the morning, like, I gotta do this. There was still passion. So in your life, are you still waking up saying, I am pressing forward? The passage says there, I am straining forward. It's this visual of the runner just the last gas. I see the finish line. I'm pushing everything I've got into this. Verse 14. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So how does a mature believer think? I'm staying in the race until the very end. staying in the race. I read a book over the last week and one of the, the tag lines was um, living well, finishing strong. Years ago, I read a book with a similar title topic and it rocked me as a young man particularly because the author pointed out how many biblical heroes ended poorly. Didn't finish well. Paul did. He says in 2 Timothy 4, 7, he writes to Timothy, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. The writer of Hebrews encourages us to do the same. This race visual. Scripture says, Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of the Father. So the race analogy is laid before, kind of in, in this, this imagery throughout the, the New Testament. And a mature believer says, okay, I'm not there yet. And Jesus is strengthening me. I didn't do this. Christ did. I'm not constantly looking in the rearview mirror. I'm pressing forward and I'm pressing forward till I reach the finish line. What is the finish line? The finish line is heaven. I'll never forget my wife and I visiting with an older couple years ago. They're both passed away now. And this woman just had a really special place in our lives, in our heart. She was 
90, 95 years old, somewhere at that point. A brilliant woman, but could barely see anymore, could barely hear anymore. And she said, I don't know why the Lord still has me here. She said, so the only thing I can do is I can pray. And I remember thinking, man, that's the race. That's the race. And she's not leading the class. She can't get out of her house. She's not running guest services. She's not leading the band. She was a great singer as a young woman. But but it had changed, but she was still in the race. And I want to encourage you, as you're maturing as a believer, to stay in the race until the very end, looking to the prize. And Paul says there in verse 14, it's the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What's the prize? The prize is Christ. Look at verse 8, Philippians 3, 8. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Verse 10, that I may know him. The psalmist says in Psalm 73, 25, whom have I in heaven but you? So the prize is Christ. The prize is serving him. The prize is losing our life for his sake. And in doing so, we find it. And we have a purpose and meaning beyond the temporal, but a purpose in the eternal. And so we're running the race that is set before us and we're maturing in the process. We're growing stronger. We're growing more consistent. Never arriving, never saying I'm perfect. Never taking credit, saying what's happened in my life, I did, no, it's Christ who did it. Not looking in the rear view mirror, pressing forward, staying in the race to the end, and we cross the finish line, and there is Jesus, our prize. Not a mansion in heaven, not crowns, not this, that, or the other, but Jesus, who laid down his life for us and paid the penalty for our sin and rose from the dead and offered us the pardon of our sins and offered us the gift of eternal life. And so we hug Jesus and we say, you are my prize. That's maturity. Even when I read Psalm 73, 25, I think, Lord, I'm not there. Help me to get there. Whom have I in heaven but you? It's not that there aren't other things in heaven that aren't wonderful. But the prize is Christ. And that's what our eyes are fixed on. So I want to encourage you, if you're struggling, maybe you don't think this way. Then the Bible is saying to you, this is how you ought to be thinking. You need to change the way you think. And think this way. Over the last few weeks, you've been given some, we're calling menus. And you'll see reach, gather, grow on them. I want you to know that we are not interested in wasting paper or chopping down needless trees. 
On there are ways for you to grow as a Christian. For some of you, you've been here long enough. It's, it's, it's go time. It's go time. Some of you men have dilly-dallied around spiritual things for too long. This is the week you need to lock in, get in a men's group, get in a men's growth community, and say, I'm committed to being the man of God I'm supposed to be. I don't know what that looks like, but we're going to figure it out. For some of you, it's getting in a growth community for the very first time. For some of you, it's starting to teach. You've been on the bench too long. But these are opportunities for you to grow. And what happens is, as we spend time with other believers in the word of God, the way we think begins to be reshaped. This begins to change. The Lord does that supernaturally. My, my prayer is that those of you right now who the Lord is working on will not just skip that and race out the door today. You'll, you'll seize that opportunity. One more opportunity. We've got a young lady being baptized today, and maybe you're here, and a couple weeks ago you white-knuckled it in your seat, skipping baptism. But you've come to know the Lord, and you need to get baptized today. In a minute, I'm going to pray. The band's going to come out and sing. During that song, I want to encourage you to walk right through those curtains, and there's some folks there that help you get a T-shirt, some shorts, a towel, help you get baptized. Maybe you're nervous, maybe you don't know anybody and there's a friend with you or a parent with you. Ask them to come with you, not to be baptized, but to help you go up there so you're not afraid. But just to encourage you, okay? Take advantage of that. Let's pray together.